There's two topics that you should never bring up in polite conversation around the dinner table, right? Religion and politics. And we're talking about both together right now. Are you ready for it? <laughs> um, this is going to be interesting. And there's some ground rules. Just remember, this is a service of worship and not your personal Facebook page. So, no, it's not okay to shout out random slogans during the service. Uh, we can talk about that later. I was going to title this uh, message, How to Vote Like a Christian. <laughs> but that might... Um, caused me no longer to be able to serve here at Bonavista, and I do like serving at Bonavista Baptist Church. Well, church and state. As Baptists, we have a long history of championing the separation of church and state. We're not actually entirely separate, you know. We get a lot of benefits from the state. Tax-free status, clergy housing allowance, uh, donation tax receipts, the list could go on and on. But we do, in theory, believe in something of the separation of church and state. Well, what does that mean for us when we talk about engaging in the political process? Should we, as followers of Jesus, even bother to engage at all in the political process? And if we do engage in the political process, how do we do that from a biblical follower of Jesus kind of position? That's going to be the burden of our thought for the next four weeks. So hopefully you stay with me as we go through this. Well, generally, when we preach, we want to turn to the Bible and find the answer, right? The problem with this topic is we turn to the Old Testament, and it might not be a great example for us for lots of reasons. I think if we were just to follow the example of the Old Testament and try and apply it like one for one, there'd be a lot more violence than there already is. And some of you are thinking, that's okay. It's not okay. I just want to say that clearly. In our political engagement, violence is not the way of Jesus. Violent words are not the way of Jesus. Violent actions are not the way of Jesus. I would go so far as to say violent thoughts are not the way of Jesus, because Jesus got right to the heart of our, our, our heart and our thoughts. And so it's difficult as we look at the Old Testament and the transition of power that happened time and time again, often was bathed in violence. So we turn to the New Testament with great hope and expectation. But here we have a problem again, because it's hard to, to relate directly to the uh, political landscape in the New Testament compared to the political landscape now. Uh, the Christian church, as many people were, were very much marginalized, had no voice, no power, no vote. And that's why it's sometimes hard for us, I think, to understand the gospel. Because we, believe it or not, are in positions of affluence and power and privilege. The early church was not. And so it's difficult for us to marry that one for one. Even Paul, who was educated, even Paul, who was a citizen of Rome, did not vote for Caesar. And so how do we learn then from the Bible as we go through this? The reality is that Canada is a constitutional monarchy and a parliamentary democracy, right? It's founded on the rule of law with respect for the rights and freedoms of individuals. The government acts in the name of the crown, but derives its authority from the Canadian people. No such system was even conceived of during biblical times. 
So you see the disconnect that we have and the challenge that we might have, and I'm just being honest about this, the challenge we might have in understanding the biblical context for political engagement for the church today. So what do we do? Well, I do believe that there are enduring principles that we can apply, and we're going to look at one of them today from 1 Timothy, and that's this. First of all, pray. First of all, pray. I know it's not the answer you want to hear. You want to get into the sticky stuff. You go like, come on, bring it. That sounds like the Sunday school answer. It's like, what was the squirrel's name? Jesus, right? It's like, that's the, it sounds like the Sunday school answer. Of course we have to pray. But what about advocacy? What about activism? What about accountability for some of these leaders? What about voting and petitioning? What about protesting? Let's get into the good stuff. Let's get into nitty gritty. Let's see some, you know, tears shed and some blood shed and let's get political. But have we prayed? Have we prayed? As I think about this election that we've just come through here in the province, uh, we saw lots of things. We saw all the political ads, which I got sick and tired of because they told me nothing. All they, they, they tried to teach me was to hate the opposite viewpoint. And they were not helpful, that's my opinion. And then so maybe I dug in a little bit more to the candidates and in our local area. What do they believe and what was their platform and what were they putting forward? And that's good, that's important. And then we show up to vote. But at one point it occurred to me, have I prayed? Have I prayed? Yes, we can get to advocacy and accountability. But first, says Paul to Timothy, pray. That's the first step of political engagement for the follower of Jesus. First of all, pray. Well, Paul instructs Timothy with three things about prayer. Who to pray for? what to pray for, and why we should pray. Ready for it? Who are we to pray for? Well, in this sense, Paul, you just see the heart for the gospel that he has. He says, pray for everyone. Pray for all people. You could translate this, pray for all kinds of people. As Eugene Peterson translates it, pray for everyone you know, every name that comes to mind. The idea is this, don't just pray for the people you like. And don't just pray for the people who can benefit you. I pray for Doug, but it's mostly because he needs it and he buys me coffee from time to time. <laughs> but don't just pray for people you like. I do like Doug. In fact, Jesus pushes it further, doesn't he? He teaches us to pray for our enemies. So in the political process, even if we see the opposite side as being an enemy to our cause, what do we do with our enemies? Love them and pray for them. That's, that's the high calling. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be holy in a world that hates one another. Is we pray for them and we learn to love them even your enemies. And so this ties into later in the passage where Paul says to Timothy, this is because God wants everyone to be saved. And so we pray for everyone, because that's God's heart. But then Paul gets specific, doesn't he? He says, pray for everyone, but start at the top. <laughs> 
Pray specifically for kings and all those in authority. Now just pause for a minute and remember who the king was, right? The king probably at the time was a character by the name of Nero. You know, Nero, and there's lots of legend and talk about him and, and the burning of Rome and the blaming of Christians and all kinds of things that happened unto Nero. That was probably the emperor during the time. And Paul is saying, pray for that guy. That guy that seems to hate the church. that hates Christians. That guy that you didn't vote for and you don't care for. But pray, starting with Nero. Pray for him. And it turns out the early church took this really seriously. They actually did that. And when we say pray, when you read prayers in the New Testament, that is a code word for public worship. What Connor did today is exactly what Paul was instructing. We didn't talk beforehand, but Connor in praying publicly for our leaders, whether you like them or not, does not matter. Publicly praying is what Paul is instructing to Timothy. There's an early church leader named Tertullian, and he explained it this way. This is his words from 2,000 years ago. We pray for all the emperors that God may grant them long life, secure government, a prosperous fam family, vigorous troops, a faithful senate, an obedient people, that the whole world may be in peace and that God may grant both to Caesar and to every person the accomplishment of their just desires. The early church took it seriously. Even though they had no power, even though they had no vote, even though the Caesars were often against them, they prayed for those in authority. That's who to pray for. Pray for everyone, but start at the top. Well, what do we pray for? Because I know some people are saying, oh, I pray for them all right. <laughs> no, not those kind of prayers. Honestly, we're instructed in this passage what to pray for. And it's right at the beginning of the passage. It says this, ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf. And give thanks for them. I want you to imagine a political leader of mine, don't shout out their name, remember it's not Facebook, that you really don't like. I, I'm honest, just think about it. I know we've all got them, and maybe there's a whole cloud of witnesses in your mind right now, but just pick one. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. That's the challenge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No one said this was going to be easy. No one said this was going to be like the world around us. This is the challenge. And this is what Paul instructs to Timothy. A number of years ago, I had opportunity with the Canadian Food Grains Bank and Canadian Baptist Ministries uh, to represent our Canadian churches uh, in Ottawa on Parliament Hill for a, um, an event that's held regularly called Hunger on the Hill. And we had the opportunity to meet, I think it was with 42 members of parliament in their offices over about six days, um, a six-day period. And it was all set up beforehand. There's a, a group that works in Ottawa in order to ensure this. And we wanted to talk to them about a Christian response to hunger, both uh, here at home, but mostly internationally because the government does partner with our organizations to provide funding, and we wanted to make sure that funding would continue. That's part of it. 
And so as we went from uh, Member of Parliament's office to the next one, and then we had a big evening gathering where we invited them all out, it was so fascinating to talk with each and every Member of Parliament that we had the opportunity to do so. And uh, at the end of talking, not all the time, but sometimes we just said to them, how can we pray for you? And they're mostly shocked that we'd even ask that. And we were honest. We weren't about to pray, and God, make this man, uh, you know, succumb to our wishes. <laughs> that wasn't the prayer we were praying. Or make this, this, this uh, person change parties quickly. No, we weren't paying the, praying those prayers. We prayed for them. We asked God to help them. We interceded on their behalf. And we gave thanks for them in a simple prayer. And it was opportunity to put this kind of thing into practice. It's interesting that the emperor Galerius, he ruled for six years, and during his six-year rule, he persecuted Christians. However, on his deathbed, he admitted a certain respect for the followers of Jesus, and he actually asked them to pray for him. Isn't that an interesting testimony? To the power of the early church, even when they're powerless, they let the emperors know that they were praying for them. And sometimes the emperors responded saying, please do. But ultimately here, Paul's heart is the gospel. So although we pray for God to help them and we intercede on their behalf and we give thanks, ultimately Paul says, pray that all of them might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. That's Paul's heart. That should be our heart for every member of parliament, every politician that we know, that they may be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth about Jesus. Our heart as followers of Jesus, as the church, should be for their eternal well-being. We should care for their souls. And that's what we need to pray for. So who to pray for? Everyone, but start at the top. What to pray for? Ask God to help them, intercede for them, uh, give thanks for them, and pray that they might come to know Jesus. But why? Why should we do all this? Well, this might surprise you. I mean, we do it because it's the right thing to do. Okay? We do it because we're being commanded by Scripture. I get that. But Paul actually has an interesting motivation as to why we should pray. And he says it like this. So that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. So that we can live in peace. Pray for our leaders. That's an interesting motivation. Pray especially for rulers and their governments, says Eugene Peterson's translation, translation. To rule well so that we can be quietly about our business of living simply and in humble contemplation. So at the time that Paul wrote this, Christianity at first was not an illegal religion in Rome. It was still seen as kind of a sect of the Jewish faith, and so it had some protections. But more and more as it became apparent that this was maybe a new thing or something very different, increasingly the church came under persecution. But at this point, Paul is saying, church, pray for your emperor so that he will leave you alone, <laughs> so that he'll let you get about your business, so that he'll let you just simply pursue the mission that God has called you to. That's the separation of church and state. <laughs> pray for the emperor and then get on with the mission of the church. 
And we want to do that, and we want to do that with great freedom. And so that's why we pray. So, what does Christian political engagement look like? First of all, pray. Before we jump to the other stuff, before we get into the nitty-gritty, and we, we will, but first of all, pray. But here's an, an important distinction that Paul and the early church made. They would not pray to the emperor, but they would pray for the emperor. And that's what set them apart. They would not worship the emperor, but in worship to God, they would pray for the emperor. Theophilus of Antioch. I love the old names. Can we resurrect some of these names? Theophilus of Antioch. We're going to rename Pastor Samuel. This is your new Greek name. <clears throat> he writes this. The honor that I will give the emperor is all the greater because I will not worship him, but I will pray for him. You see the distinction? See the separation of church and state there? We recognize and pray for the emperor, honor the emperor, honor the king, but worship God. So here's my challenge today. Do we pray for our mayor, Jody Gondek, and her council? Do we pray for Premier Daniel Smith and the opposition leader, Rachel Notley? Are we praying? Do we pray for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the leader of the opposition as well? Are we praying? Before we jump to criticism, before we try accountability, before we uh, mobilize in advocacy, do we pray and ask God to help them? Do we intercede for them and their families? Do we give thanks for them? And do we, we plead that they might come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? This is the challenge of what it means to be a follower of Jesus as we engage in the politics of our world. Let's pray together. Father, we worship you and you alone. And we thank you that you made that worship very personal by sending your son Jesus so that we might know you completely, that we might know that we are loved and welcomed into your presence, and so that we might uh, have this relationship of prayer. So it's not just empty words, but we know that we're praying to you in person. And Father, as Connor has already led us in prayer today, we continue to pray for those in leadership among us. We pray for our political leaders. We pray for leaders of faith and leaders of different faith and leaders who have no faith. And, and yet we ask, Father, that together they might be blessed by you with wisdom and courage and that ultimately they would come to know the truth about your son, Jesus. Help us to be faithful as we engage the world around us and at the same time, Help us to stand apart. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.